we say good morning. Good Good to see you guys. We uh, have as our subject today, as we continue on in the exposition of the book of Revelation, is uh, dealing with worldly compromise. That's Satan's throne. That sounds pretty heavy, doesn't it? If we were to ask what is the central issue in this message that we're looking at today, uh, as far as the church of Pergamum is concerned, and all churches really, we might say that it was a church that was not to tolerate those who did not uphold the requirements of the standard of the Word of God. To uphold the truth. There's a general attitude among religious people about, as far as the Word of God is concerned, that the Word of God really sets forth teachings that are not quite as important as things that are set forth in a person's life. The way that you live your life is more important than the Word of God, is what many Christians would say. But one of the teachings of Pergamum was that the Word of God was really kind of below some other teachings. Uh, the Word of God is not as important as how you live your life. Word of God actually is, it demands action, it demands reading, it demands studying, it demands listening to the Word of God proclaimed. It's the easy route, though, to avoid the Word of God and just take it easy. And if we live right, then that's what matters. The Word of God can be put on a shelf. Well, according to the Word of God, we cannot know how to live right unless we know what the Word of God says about living right. How can we know what is really right and true unless we are right in our own eyes? So... There's an opinion that man has that if your conduct is right, your creed doesn't really matter. What do I mean by creed? Creed means I believe. We believe. What do we believe? I believe what the church believes. What does the church believe? What's what the pastor believes? It's what my teacher believes. What is that? Well, I don't know. <laughs> well, how can you live according to what you don't know, right? So it's important to know it. The Lord stresses that the church at Pergamum is about a person's conduct, and at the same time, listen to this, He criticizes their doctrine. Now, does that sound opposite? But the problem with their doctrines were that two of them, were wrong. They were bad. It criticizes that because they were not true doctrine. They were actually heresies. So, Jesus has to say something about this. Our Lord would have been very, very much opposed to the fact of, let's say, just what we, you know, what they say, what the world would say is that as long as your own life is going good and going right, then that's all that matters. And Jesus demands their attention of saying, 
the Word of God matters, then the person's lives will matter when they see that their conduct is to be right along with their creed. Here's what you believe. Here's what you say to be true. Now live it, right? And that's what Jesus taught constantly. So what we're going to see here is the problem at Pergamum was not living up to the standards of the truth of God. It's really what they were not doing, and they were actually living in worldly compromise. They were actually living to what they were believing to be what was right, the world's <coughs> standards. So therefore, what Jesus has to uh, address them, because they were getting into worldly compromise, and also, this is a place where Satan dwells. Jesus says that twice in this text. It gets your attention, doesn't it? To, uh, I guess you could say, that temptation was something that was around them constantly. It was immoral things. They were being seduced by the things of the culture, the idolatrous culture that was there. And it was overwhelming to the people in the church there. Many of them were being tempted, tested, and failing because they did not pay attention to truth, but they went by their own thinking and their own worldly ways that they used to do. Well, it must be okay. Everybody else is thinking and doing that way. We today also have a compromising situation here in the country that we live in. The state, the city, the areas that we live in, we're tempted, aren't we? Did you know that we, like Pergamos, are in a situation to be tempted and to be taken in from the temptations that the world offers us. We know that, don't we? We are to take heed, seek the truth, and then live it out. So that's what we'll be looking at today. So let's uh, take up our Bibles and turn to uh, Revelation 2, starting at verse 12. Going through verse uh, 17 today. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Let's pray. Father, speak to us now through your word that as we live in a day of compromise, as the church is constantly being tempted to going back to the old ways, listening to heresies and false teaching, not living their lives according to the word of truth, Lord, help us be more formed like Christ through your word, your sword. Let it rip through us today so that we can be more like Christ. In your Son's name, Amen. Okay, you know, you'll notice on your uh, bulletin is the outline on the back side of your bulletin there. We'll be using that same outline throughout the rest of chapter 2, actually, and chapter 3. And it's basically the same outline that we have used for the first two churches. Pretty easy for me to put that down on paper this time. Just follow what I did like I did at Ephesus, or with Ephesus. Second church was the same except there was one thing that wasn't there. It was the condemnation on the Smyr church. He didn't have any condemnation upon them as he will not have condemnation on the church at Philadelphia. When we look at that, we'll see that it will be like it was with Smyrna. Pergamum is being addressed by the angel, and I'm not going to go into any depth here. We've done it before. Angel is messenger. Angelos could be pastors, elders, some kind of a messenger. Could be a real angel. I'll let you figure that out on your own, whatever you like. But it says it's to the church in Pergamum. We found out that the little bit of background of these cities has helped us in understanding what kind of situation the people lived in at that time. We today live in this world, a world of unrest, a world where people are fearing right now. They have no need to be fearing if they know Christ. But what we look here at uh, this historical background, it will help us knowing that these are real saints living in a world that is assaulting and attacking their very word of truth and their way of living. You see, the world would like for us to live like they do and make them feel a lot more comfortable. They hate Christians because they know that we live by a different book And it makes them very uncomfortable because they, in the back of their minds, know there is a God until they become so hardened that Romans 1 says God turns them over to a depraved mind. So they can't think clearly. They don't live clearly. Pergamos is a word that means marriage. Uh, The word, uh, I believe, is gamos. Pergamos. Gamos means marriage. 
And the word for P-E, what would be P-E-R in our English here, would suggest a thorough marriage. A real marriage. True marriage. And that's what Pergamum means. That's interesting. I think to the church, it means what we can understand is that we are married to Jesus Christ. We are the bride of Christ. That's a real marriage, isn't it? So, that's the name of the city, what it means. Pergamum is 55 miles north of Smyrna. That's where we were at last week. And they were like 35 miles from Ephesus, Pergamus, or uh, Smyrna was. So, we're going 90 miles or so from Ephesus all the way on up north now to what is Pergamum. It'd be like from here to, how about Kirksville? That's um, good, something like that, right? They just keep going up north, Highway 63, and you'll get to Pergamum, right? <laughs> so... Uh, does this city exist today? Yes, it does. It exists. There is such a city. It was a center of religion at that time. Whenever John wrote this through Christ speaking to him, it was an important city. Matter of fact, they say it was the most important city of Asia which is really where Turkey is at today. So, it was the capital of Asia for like 400 years. That's an important city, isn't it? Now, some of the other cities that we've looked at, let's say Ephesus and Smyrna, were like industrial towns, or you could say they were port cities, having harbors, uh, they were uh, on a major trade route, and Pergamum really isn't in that kind of situation. It's actually a university city. And I imagine most of you pick up on that. When you think of Columbia, Missouri, you think of a university city. And I think of liberal as can be, and they're exposing themselves ultimately in these days more than I have ever seen before. And they're known as that. And if you go to any big university, you will see that that is a liberal city. And they're headed by liberal professors. Very liberal. Socialist, Marxist, and that's their, their way of thinking. Well, this place is not too much different than that. It's not really a commercial type of town like we've seen before. Um, it was a very uh, educated area. Uh, proud of their library that they had. It was second only to one other library, and that was in Alexandria, Egypt. And you know that some of our early church fathers came from Alexandria. Great learning area there. They had 200,000 volumes in that library. Quite remarkable, especially for that time. It was huge. And also... It's interesting that Mark Anthony, how many have heard of Mark Anthony of the Roman Empire? He gave to, um, I guess you could say, Cleopatra, his lover who was also in uh, Egypt, Cleopatra. We know that story. He gave her this library. 
the 2,000 volumes. Quite a feat there. It was also known for uh, probably making parchment or vellum, which many of the ancient texts text that really were current to New Testament time period, you can give maybe credit to the people here because <clears throat> they came up with this idea of this vellum. It was to last longer. It's animal skin. And the writings that they would have, they would be able to put it right there in that library and to keep for a long period of time. So they provided writing material also. But here's the big kicker. It was a host of temples. They had temples all over the place. These temples were magnificent, impressive as it was. They had a, a temple to Athena. Probably heard of Athena. Dionysius, the god of wine. Zeus. And Asclepius. And that was really some of the temples that they had to these false gods. And then they had the cult of the emperor, emperor worship, which whatever Caesar was there at the time in rule over that empire, that is the one that they would start with. That would be their first god, along with their many other gods. This was a big thing. It would be in the honor of Emperor Augustus. So this is quite a place it is. You had the great altar of Zeus standing before Athena's temple. Excuse me this morning. A lot of times I like to get some pictures of these cities and the ruins or whatever, you know, or artist depictions and show how it is currently and kind of put that up with the outline where you can get a good picture. But today you will have to look at Frida's notebook there as she has quite a few pictures already up there so she won't like there. If you have your computer with you as like in a phone, you can dial that right up and see what I'm talking about. So they, uh, they had this kind of worship. Athena's temple was situated on a hill that was called a conical hill. It stood up 800 feet above this city of Pergamum. Would that be impressive? As you came into town and you'd be looking at this huge hill with the temples up there and then this city all laid out. People go, wow, this is the educated city. Well, we just spoke about Zeus and Athena there. There's another one you're probably not familiar with, but actually you really are familiar with it. But you might have not heard the name. It's Escalapius. You say, who's that? He's the god of healing. Oh, the god of healing. Yeah, whenever I say what their symbol is, then it'll immediately come in and be etched into your mind. You see, have you ever seen the snake that deals with the symbol for medicine? It's a wreathed snake. Does that sound familiar? That is the modern symbol today of our modern medicine. You'll see it at doctor's offices and anything dealing with it, or one paper that comes from an official document that comes from the doctor's office. They might have that as their logo. Everybody's seen this, right? The God of healing. 
Well, this attracted people to this place. Everybody wants to be healed. you got sicknesses, diseases. Well, you go to this place. And maybe you'll get healed. You've heard about it all your life, so you make a 200-mile trek to this compromising area, a very sinful city, Pergamum, to get healed. So you walk into the temple, and you lay down, and all these non-poisonous snakes are all over the place. You'll love this, Penny. You love snakes, don't you? Yeah. Oh, it's Snyder, spiders that you're okay with. It's the snakes that you have to avoid. Oh, what? You don't like either one of them? Okay. All right. No, nobody likes either one of them. Okay. So these snakes just with all over their bodies. And that is how they're going to get healed because the God of healing will heal them. So they believe having these snakes all over them. So, um, the temple of Asclepius is there. Do you see that this place is just full of spirituality? It must be right. they got all the religions there. You know? Well, this is where the believers of Jesus Christ we're trying to operate in this city called Pergamos. Now, does that help give us a good view of what's going on there, knowing there's a church planted there? Now, Paul did not start that church there. He, we don't see any records that he did even go there. He did go to Ephesus, and from there on out, they will take it on out to other areas. That's how missionaries should work. You know, you go into a place and you let the locals go out and populate the area with churches. Plant churches. That's really the best way to do it. Well, you see, that is uh, a tough thing to do because you have emperor worship. And we've already said this about the other cities that we've looked at, (laughs) other churches. To worship that emperor, once a year you're required to go to the uh, temple of the emperor here, like, for instance, in this city, Pergamum, and you would take a pinch of, I guess you could say, incense, and you would drop that incense on the altar, and then you would say, Caesar is Lord. He didn't have to mean it, but it kind of unified all the nations of the Roman Empire. It really wasn't a saying that where, okay, you can't have other religions, but you must, first of all, say Caesar is Lord. And you can have whatever else you want. It's okay. Christians would have a major problem with that. We don't blend in with other religions at all, do we? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the light. No man comes to the Father but through me. No man can have salvation without Jesus Christ and Him alone. So how do you think you would fare if you were in that city and by law they were saying you're required to do this? To do the incense on the altar and say Caesar is Lord. And even if you don't mean it, it's okay. And then you can have Jesus as Lord all of them, although that you want. So, okay. What would your reaction be? What would you do with that? Well, in our times that we're living in, we could be close to that, couldn't we? So what would we do 
if we're told to confess another god or confess the existing new government that would tend to take over or any other belief for that matter uh, some kind of social kind of belief right so there's where they're at they're in a real tough situation what a bind what would you do let's move on so we get the idea of Pergamum now right What's the second part of the outline? You should, should know it by now. It's now the characteristic of Christ. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword, says this. And this time it's really quick. It's the sharp two-edged sword. Hebrews 4.12 says he's sharper. His word is sharper than any two-edged sword that pierces between the marrow. This is the word of God. He pronounces something here. This is actually encouraging to the people for the fact that some of them would be having to deny Jesus Christ and to pronounce Caesar as Lord. And they know that the sword of the proconsul of the Roman Empire could actually be cutting your head off if you don't do that. That's quite alarming, isn't it? Well, you see, many of them were being persecuted. We certainly saw it in Smyrna, which is only about 55 miles away. About an hour's drive. Or maybe about a five-day walk. One or the other, right? Anyway, it's speaking of the risen glorified Jesus Christ our Lord who has this sharp two-edged sword that's the word of God the sword actually is an instrument of what? judgment Uh, the government has the sword it says in Romans 13 what's that mean? it has the authority to take lives from people who have taken other lives for instance We've gotten away from that in our nation, but at one time we did that. I'll tell you what, it's the best deterrent there is of murder. And you're hearing murder today in Jeff City. It's constant. Columbia's even worse. St. Louis, it's just constant. Chicago is even the worst. Just name all the cities and then the countryside and such. There's murder just going on all the time. Right now, somebody's being murdered. Right now, again, somebody else is being murdered. That's how quick it's happening. Incredible. And then on that, at the same time, you have all these millions and millions of unborn babies being murdered, right? Sad thing. But at any rate, uh, that's what really the sword was for, though. People who killed people or did something very dastardly that was evil and wicked and that was harmed people. So that's what a government really is for, even as bad as they can be sometimes. They're there to protect us. And if they take away police, who's going to come when you need them the most? Yeah, right. So we, we know the political stance that we have here. And so the judgment of the Roman Empire would be that they could cut your head off for not saying Caesar is Lord. 
In chapter 1, you see the coming of the Lord, uh, or the coming out of the mouth of the Lord, a sword, right? That sword is the Word of God. You look in Revelation 19, when Christ comes back, what does He have in His mouth? The sword. You know what? And you, you would think, oh, He's going to come down and start slaying people. Well, He'll probably slay them, but how will He do it? With the mouth. See, the sword is in the mouth. The mouth. All He does is speak a word and they're judged. That's really all He has to do. You know, whatever He uh, created, what did He do? He just spoke. Let there be light, right? Let there be everything, whatever is created. He'll use a word. He destroys all the enemies of God. When He comes back, His Word does the work, doesn't it? The work of judgment. He will speak and vanquish every foe. Don't you like that? Everything that has been built up against Him in error, against His truth, they will be judged. So, to the Pergamos Christians, He says, realize I'm in control of your destiny. I have the sword. I will protect you. You are mine. I possess you. I will take care of you. But it's also saying, and we'll see a few verses later, a judgment that they will have to have done. He says, repent. And if they don't repent, repent. If it's not taken care of, then I'm going to come with my sword, with my word, judgment starts at the household of God. Starts with the church. Saying quite a bit there, isn't it? So we'll get into that probably a little bit more as we focus on that. The third one now is the commendation of the church. We've seen those in the other churches. Here again we see it again. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Well, that gets our attention. You hold fast my name. How? Well, they believe in him and they stayed right with Him. They hold on to that name. You held fast. The name of Christ. The name of God. It's dealing with His characteristics. It's all that He is. All of His attributes. The name of Christ. The name of God. All of His attributes. All of His authority. I've always used the analogy. The police would say, Stop! In the name of the law, right? In the name, in the authority of. They held fast to His authority, His character, His nature. That's how they did it. We hold fast His deity. Him being God. Jesus Christ is God. He's also man. 100% man. 100% God. The God, man, and Savior. We can be like Thomas. 
whenever he took his finger into the the wound of the print nails of the hand of he took his hand and placed it in there into Christ and he saw that that was what happened at the cross and what did he say my lord and my god Jesus is god that's a deity passage if i've ever heard one he said, well, how, what do you mean Jesus is God? Somebody asked you that. He said, do you remember Thomas? My Lord and my God. He is God. Satan's throne. I think that's fascinating. You want to spend just a few minutes here on, on this Satan's throne thing? You ever felt like you were at Satan's throne sometimes? Some of the places you've been? <laughs> well, honestly... Tell you, Satan is not omnipotent, omniscient, or omnipresent, is he? He can't be more than one place at one time. He can't be here and then another place. And he's not God, right? That's only the attribute of God. So Satan can't be, but he does have demonic beings that are on his side. But here it is here. He says, this is where Satan's throne is. What's going on here at Pergamum? What's happening? Well, you can think of that altar of Zeus that we described earlier that was on the hill above the city, 800 feet high. Or you can think of the other temples. It was all the temples. Some say that. Or it could be the temple of Asclepius. Can you guys say that? Asclepius. <laughs> that is who? The God of healing. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? You know what? I think it's all of them. Or some would say that it is Caesar. Emperor worship would be where Satan is. Definitely. All the false gods... Definitely, I think it's all the above. Check each individual, all the law, uh, all the different ideas, and the temple, the, anything that's spiritual in their sense, but it's not truth of the Word of God. You see, Satan, Satan himself is the arch enemy of the church. Satan is the arch enemy of the church. He relentlessly assaults the church with hypocrites, with false teachers, with temptations, persecution, you name it. He has all sorts of different ammo that goes up against us. He has a lot of weapons, doesn't he? We have an enemy. This enemy is of no equal except God the one that created him, has total control over. We can't match him, but greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. When you have Christ, you have nothing to fear in Satan. But yet his throne is here. <clears throat> all the temples and all the different kinds of worship that they had. Now, I want you to listen really careful. You got, you got my attention? Or have I got your attention? <laughs> attention! <laughs> okay. This is interesting, folks. Check this out. 
You know where the religions developed? They are historically known to develop at Babel. Do you remember when they had, when the languages happened, God divided them up and they all had to filter on out? We see their whole idea was to, they built these high places, and you know, you've seen some of the uh, buildings that they've had, and they were to study the stars. And they're not studying God, and they're not really studying creation of God, but they're coming away with messages that come in the stars. So even though there are amazing wonders in the sky, and uh, there happens to be constellations that are really cool to study and look at, they developed a religion there in Babylon, and that one religion that they had there, as it went on out into the rest of the world, as they were divided up into different languages, they took that religion. And almost all of these religions that you see in today, you have the world religions, and they are many. And you think of some of the, like Zeus or Athena, and all of those, they're really the same thing, only they have different names for their gods. So, what happened out of uh, Babel or Babylon is they had this established religion. Now, it's it supposedly stayed there even though people went out and took their, their religions wherever they went. They found their way later on to this place called Pergamum. So the world religion... And you see, God said, let's go down and confound them lest they be what? One. See, that's what the world wants. A one world government. We've been hearing about this for years. I've been studying it for 40 years now. I first heard about it in 1980. And I said, what is this? And I was so fascinated. I got every book that I could get a hold of coming from Christian angles and looking at what they were saying and all these things were coming from different religions. But they want a one world government and a one world religion. They want one that they can worship Christians identify Him as the Antichrist. Well, here in this place called Pergamum, they now have that religion that came from Babylon to Pergamum. And they had a high priest there. The high priest is now located not in Babylon, but was in Pergamum. And did you know what they called him? Pontifex Maximus. And they sound kind of familiar. It's Latin. And of course, you know, in the Roman Empire, you have the Latin language, uh, Pontifex Maximus. It's striking. It's Pontifex, uh, as you know, comes from these two Latin words. It's Pontiff is dealing with bridge. And Fex is dealing with to make or to build. To build a bridge. That's a Pontifex. Bridge builder. Okay, are we getting that? A great high priest 
He's also called a great or maximus. That's easy to get, isn't it? Max. We use it today, right? Totally maxed out, man. No, this, that's max. You know, that's, that's great. It's large. Okay, Pontifex Maximus is the great high priest that was in Pergamum at this time. And this is what came from Babylon. And you know what? It got transferred from Pergamum to guess where? Rome. Today we have a person that is called the Pontifex Maximus, the great high priest called the Pope. I'm just giving history here. I'm not putting out anything here that would be false. You say, well, we need to get on with the Word of God here and study that. We are. Because this is what Pergamus was about. They now had inherited the Pontifex Maximus, their religion that came from Babylon, the throne of Satan. Did you catch that? Jesus called it twice the throne of Satan. I find that fascinating. Guess where the throne of Satan went? It went to Rome. And they use all of these same kind of things in that kind of religion. And that's how they got anything from... Um, you, you can see... Okay, let's say, what, what would be like a, a cross and it's on beads? Have you ever seen those? What is that? A rosary. And they'll say it over and over and over and over. Fifty times, hundred times. And that magically somehow well where did they where did the, the, the church our, you know the, the body of Christ ever come up with that? Well it wasn't at the outset, it wasn't at first, but it was it was actually over the course of hundreds of years, a lot of these things developed and got into the church that have nothing to do with Christianity, the Bible. It was outside the Bible. What are some other things that you can think of? Purgatory, where did that come from? It's not in Scripture. It's not there. That would be dealing with works. You can go on and on. All those things are inherited. And they were put in there. That's that one world religion. When we get to Revelation chapter 17 and 18, we will see Babylon again which went to Pergamum, which went to Rome. It's the city on how many hills? Seven hills? It's found in Revelation. All those things. And so that's kind of interesting where we look at here. So Satan's throne was there. And the Pope, or the Pontifex Maximus, lived in that area. And so what does he say? I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And then he comes down, they killed Antipas, where Satan dwells. Well, maybe not him, you know, in a physical body, but that is representing the very world religion that has affected all the religions except Jesus Christ's religion, which is the only right and true religion, right? So do you see what they were up against now? Does that information help? That's what it was at that time. And Jesus says it as clearly as can be. 
It's where Satan dwells. It's where Satan's throne is. He's ruling there with all of these other religions. And it's really one world religion, a one world government, and we know that Rome is going to have a lot to do when you think of the revival of the Roman Empire. This is going to come into play as we move further on into Revelation. As we look at it here in Pergamum, I think it's quite significant that we get that information now and, and just look at it historically. So we looked at that and it mentions that they didn't deny their faith. You hold fast my name. You didn't deny the name Jesus Christ. They, they could have denied it. They clung to the Lord Jesus Christ. John is on the Isle of Patmos for what reason? For the testimony of Jesus, what was he doing? He was preaching the Gospel. He was preaching the Word. And there he is, 90 years old, and he's splitting rocks. Well, I did that yesterday for one day and about killed me. And it might still kill me. I don't know, my heart is still beating. <clears throat> heart rate of 85 this morning. Finally, it slowed down. It was like at 105. It doesn't even show it on here anymore. It just says zero. <laughs> Am I here? <laughs> okay. Anyway, they held on to His name. Folks, that is quite a commendation. We, as a church, want to be committed to holding on to His name or what He's about. His authority. That's what it is, folks. That's what it's all about. And they had Antipas. Who's Antipas? Well, Christians were being killed and Antipas is named here. It's very likely was their pastor. My witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Satan is the father of murder. He's the father of lies. He brought lies into the church. He brought persecution and death unto the church. He killed Antipas, probably the pastor. This had happened at, uh, what, 90 A.D., before that probably. And so he names his name. Was persecution going on and death? Yeah, absolutely. Because they held on to the name of Christ. Would you owe your allegiance to a one-world religion? A one-world government? That's where it's going, folks, and it's really close. That's why our president doesn't want us to get into, uh, let's say, the climate, because the world gets together in that, or the UN. He knows. He knows what is going on. He doesn't want a one world. We are a sovereign nation. We shouldn't bleed into the world and be buddies with China and Russia and on and on with all the other ones. We are our own nation. But God may so fit, fitly limit us who we are now. Being the greatest nation in the world, we could be diminished to nothing. I don't see the United States in the Bible. I don't know. I, I, I just speculating. There's just nothing there. I, some people, you know, have some thoughts that it could be, you know, this and that. But the fact of the matter is, we don't know for sure. 
All I know is that we may not be making the impact that we have all of our lives to the rest of the nations. It's the greatest place to live. So, the condemnation of the church now comes in 14 and 15. But, I have a few things against you. What was the problem with Ephesus? One thing. They left their first love. Christ was not at the top. The Word of God was doctrine, but Christ and loving Him was not their full pursuit. Well, now this time, it's a few things on this church. We just saw that they're faithful. They had a faithful pastor, or whoever he was, Antipas, but they held on to Christ. But these things I have against you. Why? Because you have someone who holds the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. That kind of thing happened in the church? Yeah. The teaching of Balaam. You know what? The children of Israel, you know the story. I'll go it over briefly. The children of Israel escaped Egypt, right? Moses leads them out, and they're on their way to the promised land, right? Everybody knows that part. They come to the borders of the land, and you have Moab. Balak was the king of Moab, and he's concerned about these guys. Why? Because he saw what their God did in Egypt. The ten plagues, and they actually got freedom, and getting out of there. God fed them in the wilderness and everything. And there they are, right? Balaam now is going to be brought into the story. You have Balak, the king, and then Balaam is a prophet. He prophesies. So he goes and gets him and he offers him money to make a curse against the children of Israel. He has money in hand. This sounds like the religion of our day where pastors, churches are bought out. They're called liberal churches. They're bought out by the liberalism that's in our world today. And so they go along with all the rest of the things that the liberal church or the liberal political ideas are. And they, they have no semblance of the truth of the Word of God. You know, uh, why they even call it a church, I have no idea. But men are, uh, who are in a religious work sometimes are influenced by cash. It's amazing what it does. You know, that's everywhere, isn't it? It's in the government. It's in every institution you can think of. And yes, it even happens in the church. Well, here it is. Balaam is being offered money to curse the children of Israel. And it's like he was going to give them a message and then they would not want to go any further, right? So uh, what you have is God tells Balaam, you can't say any evil against Israel. And you know what? He couldn't do it. God sovereignly, providentially prevailed in that situation. Even though the prophet has offered money, he was a prophet for hire. A prophet for money. 
So he's pretty sharp. He says, okay, God doesn't let me speak to the people. What I'll do is I'll go to Balak, the king, and I will tell him, here's what I want you to do. He says, gather all the beautiful women that are in Moab and march them in front of the young men of Israel. You know what? That's the problem. That young men and even older men have because they're taken by the sight of beautiful women and they cave in And so he says to Balak, hey, listen, if you do that, you know, this is a corruptive thing that Balaam is doing. So he gives him that great idea. So here come the beautiful ladies walking down in their midst, and you know what happened. It's exactly what happened that you'd think of, and this is just as Balaam expected. And what they do is they take these beautiful young women and they commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And Israel joined herself and her true God with their gods. And the fleshly immorality that takes place. God had delivered them with His grace and power and His mercy And here they are before they go into the land and guess what they're doing. This is corruption that happened by Balaam. It's fleshly. And that's what we have today. And that's what we have all throughout history and all the way into the future until Christ comes back. That's what happens. And the fleshly will war against the Spirit And man, if you're not fed with the Word of God, you will cave. You will give in. Balaam was slain with a sword. Did you know that? In Numbers, I think it's chapter 31, Balaam was killed with a sword. Do you remember when in this section of day it says that he is the sharp two-edged sword? He has that two-edged sword. Balaam was killed by the enemy with a sword. Fascinating, isn't it? For whatever that's worth, I think it's interesting. And see, the children of Israel were never to take foreign women as wives. It was explicit in the law. They knew it. They knew it full well. So it's serious and we know that people lost their lives by God's judgment. He brought His sword at that time to the Word of God. The doctrine of Balaam is the doctrine of fleshly corruption. That is what is rampant in our country today. It's all about the sex. It's all about fleshly influence, fleshly corruption, Fleshly money. That's what happened at Pergamum. It's what has happened throughout all of history. The church will give in sometimes. It's never right. What it is, is that in this corruption, we need to put it like this. It's involvement with the world. Materialism and sexualism 
They're very influencing. And you know what? If Satan doesn't come as a roaring lion, he will come in as a snake, beguiling, subtle, like he did with Eve. Seems so good. It looks so right. It looks, you know, this can't be anything wrong with this. So that's why we have so many people in the church that go after unbelievers and they leave what they know to be truth. It is constantly happening throughout the church worldwide. It's a disease, it's rampant. But Jesus Christ, in his grace, forgives that if one repents. He has mercy and His beautiful grace just floods in and now we can live for Him. We don't have to let that old way go through it. And see, I'm talking to how many of us had the same problem way back when? The snake. Idolatry, corruption, teaching of the Balaam, Here's a lesson for all of us, guys. I, you know, I, I, it seems like I'm probably ripping right into us. And the point is, what, do, what is Jesus saying here? Take him seriously. If you hold fast to him, you need not live like the world. So, take heed, children of God. If the devil can't get you as a roaring lion, bringing all sorts of persecution or whatever. He will come with temptation that's very subtle. What about the teaching of the Nicolaitans? Not too much different. The Ephesians opposed the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. This I have for you. You are against this doctrine. But 90 miles north, Christ is going to come back to them and practice discipline. If they don't do it themselves. So he says, the, the Nicolaitans here, and this is drawing people into the world. It's back into the culture, back into idolatry, back into thinking the way that mere men think, behaving the way that mere men think, corruption by compromise with the world. The Christians there at Pergamum were participating in sins of paganism. Even eating sacrifices to idols. Remember in Corinth, Paul had to condemn them for that? Things sacrificed to idols. Remember the idol worship that they have there? Committing acts of immorality, porneia, pornography, it's in the pictures. It's on the internet. It's in the acts of porneia, fornication. And he says, that's wrong. Sins of paganism. Did you know what the two early church fathers who were living not too far from this time period on said about the Nicolaitans? They live lie. This is from Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria. And I know Zach back there knows so well. He's studied a lot of uh, the early church fathers and the Puritans. 
uh, he likes to read the dead guys. <laughs> I do too. And I think a lot of you guys like it too. Here's what they said. And they knew what was going on at this time. They knew what the Nicolaitans were about. He said, they live lives of unrestrained indulgence. Unrestrained indulgence. Just do whatever you want to do, right? It doesn't matter. Abandoning themselves to pleasure like goats. Debbie, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> Leading a life of self-indulgence. Like goats. goats just eat whatever they want to eat. Do whatever they want to do. Whatever their pleasure is. Are they easily trained? Except for the things that are good. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Goats eat weeds. They they eat the bad stuff. They don't eat the good stuff. Oh, well, that's and a good thing. They get into the good stuff. They get sick. Yeah, and whenever they eat corn or something else like fun, that, they just tear into the other animals. Need they get sick. Yeah, that's a goat. Well, Irenaeus and Clement, I get you know, they they're, they they take their pleasure like goats. Well, anyway. Sounds like what something Martin Luther would say. Nicolaeans may have been involved in immorality. No doubt about it. Uh, that's what it's talking about there. It's also where, remember we were talking about the church. The church later on starts developing a system. And it was already starting to develop there. A, div- a division between the clergy and the laity. The pastors, or they called it bishops, versus the common people. Who was held in higher esteem? The clergy. And so they they started developing, okay, the great high priest, the Pontifex Maximus, the Pope, and then you would have cardinals and then bishops, right? Priest. Did I leave one out? So, but that was developed over the course of many years. But it was already starting there. We were, you were having a, a prideful uh, difference between the, the ones who were leading the church and the other class of the laity. So, uh, anyway, later on came absolution over the people of God. It was the priest or the, the bishop or the pastor who would absolve their sins only Christ does that. He would forgive their sins. They would take confessions. And they would send people to heaven and damn others to hell. And Christ says, So you have some who in the way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Christ hates this thing. He hates this thing that's happening right there in this church. I need to get this thing wrapped up here pretty quick. Do you hate what God hates? Do you love what God's love? Or do you love what the world loves? That's the question. That'd be a good one for today, wouldn't it? He says repent. It's verse 16. That means to turn and go the other way. Stop tolerating worldly compromise. See, that's what they were doing. They were tolerating it. They were putting up with it. It was coming in the church. Most of them may not have even adopted to it. But they let it happen. It just came in and, you know, don't bother them. Don't say anything. Everything is okay. Uh, Stop tolerating an unequal yoke. That's what he's saying. You have unequal yoking here. 
with the world. And that can go to mean a lot of things. Business, marriages, or non-marriage, or whatever. This issue is a moral corruption from the surrounding pagan world. Uncleanness, immorality, indulgence in the sins of the culture, and what does Christ say? This is mercy, folks. Repent. Do you know where repentance comes from? God. Do you know where faith comes from? God. You know, in verse 13, look at this. I didn't say anything about this one. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. Now that's interesting. Does God have faith? We have faith in God. Does God have faith? Well, not really in the sense of, you know, like, it's, it's a gift, right? These three remain faith, hope, and love, right? That's a gift. that he's, He gave us faith. That's really what He's saying. It was the faith that came from God that they received. It wasn't something they worked up. It was something that God gave. He granted faith. So they kept that faith. They didn't deny the faith that He gave them. Right? So he says, repent, repent, repent. That's a gracious God that says that. He's talking to the church here. Therefore, repent or else. You remember that when you were a kid? Or else, if you get this finger, you better do what I say or else. And you're going, wonder what the or or else is. And you go, okay. I hope you you said that. I am coming to you quickly. Or it was mainly I heard this. Or else, whenever your dad gets off work and comes home, he's going to whip you. <laughs> okay. Um, that's the idea. I'm coming to you quickly. I'm going to make war against them with the sword of my mouth. If you don't take care of it, I'll take care of it. Judgment begins with the household of God. You know what? We are to take care of our own. We are to train them to discipline them. We are to do it here unless God takes care of it. If we don't take care of it, then He says, okay, I guess I'll have to do it. That, and even on instructions on the Lord's Supper in Corinthians 11, talks about the Lord's Supper. And talks about we are to judge ourselves lest you be judged by Him. That means we know whenever He is telling us, repent, we need to what? Repent. Okay, I'm 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 getting there. I'm almost there. All right. What's the threat to the church? I'm coming to you quickly. If we don't do that, then he's he's going to come back to this. And you know what he's talking about here? Matthew 18. Very uncomfortable section, but it's talking about all those who have professed Christ and have placed their membership in the church. And he says, if you don't take care of what's going on here, then I'll come here and I'll judge you. He says it needs to be done. Discipline you. And what is it? You first go to them and you tell them about that. If they don't listen, then it says, then bring bring another one and talk to them. If they don't do that, then now bring it up before the whole church. It can happen in, in a real quick amount of time. It's a warning saying, I don't want you to go astray. I'm going to have to judge this if you don't. Some bad things can happen to people who don't listen to what God's Word is and what is clear. 
And we've been seeing here throughout the immorality that was happening and an unequal yoking, and it has to be taken care of. Know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may know that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. Paul's saying that we need to use the two-edged sword. Give the Word of God to those people in that it would build them up and they would repent. To rightly divide the Word of God. The sharp two-edged sword. Weigh everything by the balance of the Bible. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. The last one, I'm going to have to breeze through this quickly. It's a promise. I love it. And I'm glad we get to end up on this. It's been tough, hasn't it? Has, this been kind of t- has it been kind of cutting today? I'm not always that way. Wherever the Word of God says it, and this is what this is about, for us to be conformed to Christ. Are you already there? No. You're not, are you? Okay, here it is. Here's the promise now. To him who overcomes, and we've seen this before. He's mentioned, who's the overcomer? 1 John 4 says, the one who believes. If you're a believer, you are an overcomer. To him overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. In the wilderness, the children of Israel were sustained and fed on manna every day. He took care of them. In a desert that had no food, no water, He took care of them. He will provide all our sustenance that we need. Christ is our hidden manna. He will always provide what we need. Don't you like that hidden manna? He gives you everything. As a matter of fact, it's more than that. Just little white stuff that they ate every day. Look at all He blesses us with. And I will give some of Him. And I will give Him a white stone. A white stone could have been used for a in a law court, and it could, on one side, either say guilty, on the other side, not guilty. When they put up that white stone and they give it to Him, they say not guilty. A white stone. Or it could mean an athlete who wins his Olympic event. Let's say he ran a marathon and he won it. He's given a white stone. (coughs) And then, a name is written on it. You see, each one of us is special to God. And He has a name for you that nobody else has. You know, husbands and wives have certain names they'll say each other and they would never use that with anybody else. Or at least I hope not. But certain names that you use that with, right? You guys are familiar with that. Or somebody that's near to you, you use a name that nobody else does. You know? Well, that's the way it is with God. That each one of us, nobody looks exactly the same, right? You know why? Because we are all special. To God, we're not made, you know, like like cookies are made in the same way, you know, must look the same. But we are all special. Even twins have a difference, mark of a difference. So in our persons, in our character, we each have a special name for eternity. And I know you're wondering, wonder what it is. Well, what does it say? No one knows. But he who receives it. That's what we're looking for. When he comes back, 
He'll have a special new name for you. Let's be a no-compromising church, not letting the things of the world stain us in this world. Father, great God, You are holy. May we see You as that with Your sharp two-edged sword, which we take as precious. Help us to know who You are, what You're about, and what You have for our lives, because that's how we learn to live for Your glory. It's only through Your Word, by Your Spirit. Lord, thank You for beating us up, in a sense, through using Your sword today, that we would be more like Christ. All honor, all glory to You. Thank You for this body of Christ here locally. And they mean so much to me and each one of us. As we glorify you together. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, let's see. We have a special announcement. Next week, next Sunday, it's not going to be after church, but I think the latest time that I've got is 6.30. There is going to be a wedding here, right? It's still on? Okay. <laughs> Just making sure. But, and we know that Taylor got baptized. Is that two weeks ago already now? I think so. Yeah. yeah. And I'm glad we didn't wait till today. <laughs> oh, darn. 